0: Hey there, it's the Planet Football Podcast. Grant Wall
1: here with Luis Miguel Echegaray. How are you doing, my friend? I'm okay. I was. <laughs> you had to think of yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> well, don't come near me. I'm like, I'm getting back to 100%. Like this weekend, as always, because it's so law. Friday comes and suddenly your body feels, oh no, you're not feeling too great. And then the entire weekend, yeah, not only did I, you know, enjoy watching Villa get destroyed, I was <laughs> sick throughout the entire weekend. <laughs> I'm sorry. But uh, luckily, my wife—I don't know what she did in the kitchen—she made some remedy, and I feel a little bit better. So that was my weekend. That was yours. It was good. I'm a Chiefs
0: fan. Uh, they went down twenty-four nothing in the first uh, half, early in the second quarter against Houston, and I was pretty upset. Uh, actually, really upset, and. Uh, then they came back and scored uh, touchdowns on seven straight possessions and won the game easily. Incredible
1: game that was. I mean,
0: amazing. What a comeback. Is this bad, by the way? Last week's interview guest, Michael McCambridge, texted me last night inviting me to come to Arrowhead for the AFC title game. And I said, no. What? I it's I, I, I understand, understand a couple of things here. Okay. I did do this last year when he invited I, me. I do remember that. Um I have a and lot they lost, so maybe it's a good thing that you I, I have a lot of plans next weekend with my wife, for one thing. Um, two, I actually think the Chiefs are going to go to the Super Bowl, and there's a chance I could go to the Super Bowl.
1: See, do you think it was good luck that you didn't go to this game? And then if you go to the championship game, you know, are you a believer in, in that kind of thing, superstition? And what's, what? Not?
0: Well, I just feel like if... I've been waiting for the Chiefs to win a Super Bowl literally my entire life. The, the only one they've ever won was, I think, four years before I was born. Mm. Um, aren't you better off going to the Super Bowl than the AFC Championship game?
1: Hey, it's in Miami. Also in Miami. Shakira J. halftime show. Latino land, baby. I would go. I think that would be a fun scene. Oh, it would be crazy. It'd be yeah. fun. Good games. Good games this weekend.
0: Lots to talk about here. Busy soccer weekend, as they always are. Uh, as we always do with our podcast, we're going to start with England and discussing things there. Uh, we're going to talk about what's going on in Europe, particularly Barcelona chaos right now. Uh, then we're going to go to North America and talk about a few different things, including Chicho Rito, LA Galaxy actually confirming publicly that they're going after him, which yeah, is a was... pretty big one for them to actually say something about it publicly before they've done the deal. It suggests they might be confident on this one I would think big statement Um, and then uh, some US soccer stuff we'll talk about uh, some NWSL stuff big uh, moves in that league last week but let's start with England Uh, game of the weekend Spurs nil Liverpool won Um, Liverpool now up by 14 points with a game in hand on City which also uh, won 6-1 to against your Villa sorry Um, it's okay (laughs) <laughs> what do we what do we think about Jose Mourinho? Because that seems like the big talking point coming out of the weekend was that Mourinho did very Mourinho things in this particular game in terms of trying to basically shut the game down until the last 20 minutes. It almost worked. But when you take a team that was in the Champions League final, without Harry Kane getting there, by the way, earlier last year, and now Mourinho is basically kind of... Pleading poorhouse and saying we couldn't have played him head to head for 90 minutes at home. Is this sort of a dark force taking over Tottenham?
1: I just don't think I, I first of all, what what do you expect when you have Joseph Mourinho as a manager? He is a, you know, a reactor, not a not a, a sort of attacker of tactics. Today he is. You're right. He doesn't impose his tactics on you. He reacts to what you're coming with. And we know historically that, you know, one of the things that I said last week was Tottenham's biggest task was not when they have the ball, but what are, what are they going to do when they don't have it? Like, what is their shape going to be? Because, you know, Liverpool comes at you like a juggernaut that you need to prioritize certain elements. Two right backs. I, I mean, <laughs> listen. The thing is, I just, I'm just i not surprised by the way that Mourinho thought about this, but when you look at certain statistics, possession aside, I mean, they almost had even chances. Almost even chances. Not on target, but almost even chances. And listen, if Los Celso had scored that goal... Should have. Right? It was kind of an obvious finish, and he should have finished it. Uh, Mourinho reaction said it all. I just don't... I, I never saw Tottenham winning this one, and but that doesn't mean my personal feelings, which is the only way to Try and beat Liverpool if you even have a smidgen of a chance is to do a Liverpool like fight them fire with fire. And whether you try and do that, like Salzburg, right? Ex- exactly. Whether you do that right as the second half begins or whether you do that from the first minute, uh, you know, Tottenham has a depleted squad in terms of you know just the number in itself. And Harry Kane, obviously, their number one uh priority as a striker is out, so there are many. You know, I, I just think that, you know, tactically he got it wrong. Uh, but, you know, Los Celso scores that, It's 1-0 and it's a point And we're talking about a different game. But um, I just don't think that the best... the best. If you're going to have a chance at beating Liverpool, you have to try and do a Liverpool. You have to fight fire with fat, fire and give them a dose of their own medicine. As you said, just like Salzburg did in the Champions League.
0: During this march for Liverpool to the title,
1: and for that matter,
0: in Champions League, in the knockout rounds... Let's see more Salzburgs. Let's see, like you say, teams going at Liverpool. And what's the worst that can happen? You take a big L, but some good things could happen if you try and do what Salzburg
1: did. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about it, I'm sure, in a second, you know, uh, with Sergio Guero, et cetera. But that was my whole thing with Aston Villa, at, at the 6-1 loss. Uh, you know, we don't have to go too much into detail with it, but you have to gamble. You have to. The moment you sit against these big teams who love to possess, who love to, uh, are so good in the ball, etc., and I'll come back to Tottenham, Liverpool, you have to gamble. You can't sit. Because sitting basically means two things. One, at some point they're going to break you. And if they don't, you're going to shoot your own self in the foot, in the process. So you might as well just go for it. What's the worst that can happen? A valiant loss as opposed to a dreary sort of, uh, you know, uh, disappointing, uh, you know, unemotional loss that was, you know, the Tottenham won nothing to Liverpool.
0: You know, there was a good story by Jack Pitbrook, friend of uh, the podcast and our old PFTV show, um, about, and he covers um, Spurs for the Athletic, and basically his argument was, he was comparing sort of the front lines of Mourinho teams versus this Klopp team, and obviously it's an amazing front line for Klopp's team, but saying basically that in the modern game, that's what Klopp is doing, that, in, that Mourinho is not. That when it comes to attacking on the front line, they have synchronizations, they have patterns at Liverpool that those guys work on. And that is part of the modern game and part of why they're so successful. Doesn't mean they're not set plays necessarily like an like an NBA team has, but they are patterns and things that you can sort of expect as reference points up front. That Mourinho basically says to his front line, you know, go do it, you know, (laughs) and, and doesn't actually map out anything in the way of patterns and. This also gets into a couple of things, you know, I've written in my book. If you have the chapter on Chicharito Hernandez, where I spoke in depth with him and Osorio when Juan Carlos Osorio was the coach of Mexico. And they had patterns that they ran up front. That's modern soccer. Um, I take a little bit of a dig at Mourinho. And I have a story finally coming out this week on Klopp. Big story. I went over to visit him. It's coming out Thursday online. I'm really excited about people reading it. But I kind of take a dig in that story, saying that basically what Klopp has done, and Guardiola for that matter too, is stuff that Enchilotti and Mourinho and Wenger kind of stopped doing or never really did was to adapt over the last decade into the modern game.
1: Yeah, I think I would say that it's... uh, I'm very excited to read your Klopp story, by the way. I, I would say that, you know, there's a... Listen, I was a youth coach for a long time, and I did a lot of research in the summers, in terms of I wrote. I even wrote my own booklet, you know, as amateurish as it was. I wrote it, and because I was, I'm obsessed with the way that a player moves on the field, and I think that in the last ten years, definitely with Klopp um, and other managers as well, but Klopp is definitely right now, obviously, you know, just with what he's doing with Liverpool. There is a transition an elevation between what used to be the main topic, which was shape, and now individual movement and rhythm and the way that players function and where they go. It's almost basketball-ish. How if you watch Firmino and Mane and the Salah, you can see a clear knowledge of where each one wants to be when they have the ball and when they don't have it. It's so fluid. And then behind that, when you have Wijnaldum and Henderson, Oxley, chamberlain from this weekend, again, there's a shape. And it's about covering a specific space. Guardiola talks about it all the time. He's not necessarily uh, obsessed with pressing, but rather pressing the person who's about to get the ball. And that's what they saw against Aston Villa. I mean, you know, it was literally... So if, so let's say that uh, Jack Grealish has the ball and he wants to give it um, to, uh, you know, Danny Drinkwater. Uh, Manchester City is not necessarily pressing, focusing so much on Grealish, but they're pressing the options that Grealish may have. So then you just suffocate. And Liverpool does that better than anybody. So to your point, it's about... Now the elevation, talking about shape, which a lot of it was like, we're going to do a 4-4-2, striker's going to stay nice in line, or we're going to do a 3-4-3, whatever. No, now it's more than that. Now it's about where each player needs to be, what they need to do in specific situations. And I can just imagine a Liverpool drill in the preseason literally just going over and over about repetitive uh, sort of consciousness of like where a player needs to be. And that's why he's so just incredible, I think.
0: And it's not just position, fine positioning on the attacking, line i remember talking to vincent company from my book about how he said guardiola would position defenders yeah. like stop practice and say you need to be three feet more to the right and here's why And would give a long explanation about how that would actually have an influence
1: on the attack of the other team
0: yeah it's just kind of crazy when you think
1: about it. I want people to, like, tape Man City, Liverpool games, even other... even. I, I talked about it, actually. Actually, you know what? The best example, even though they're suffering a little bit, even though they're still in contention, is Marcelo Bielsa and Leeds. If you want to see, like, a serious, sort of obvious image of what synchronized teamwork looks like, just watch that. And, I mean, Liverpool does it, you know, obviously in the Premier League, but it's amazing what these players do now when it comes to what they need to do in specific situations. And again, I go back to the point that, that, that we used to talk a lot about formations and, and shape, and we still do, but the conversation has elevated itself, I think, now to more than that, which is like, you know, I- individual positioning, as you said, not just when you have the ball, but when you don't have it. And that, to me, is like amazing to watch.
0: How badly do you want Marcella Bielsa to coach the U.S. men's national team?
1: Someday? <laughs> me? Huh. Peru, yeah. <laughs> I mean... No, I would love to see Marcelo Bielsa go to a team like the U.S. Men's National yes. Team and completely transform it. But I think, with all honesty, my friend, he's too good for the U.S. Men's not Na- Not the team itself, but U.S. soccer itself. I they think. actually
0: talked to him at one point. I remember Claudia Rana telling me about the meeting he had when he was with U.S. soccer with Bielsa. And... Obviously, he doesn't speak English. I was going to say. He never never (laughs) That's the biggest obstacle. But I actually think he fits a national team better than a club team because what we see with a club team is they sort of die by the end of the season and he asks a lot of them. And so it's not particularly surprising. But if you're with a national team and you're fit and you can like do what he asks you to do, that's a pretty good situation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I just think like by, you know, everything that I know about him and even just watching the Amazon documentary, like, he loves the in like the day in and day out of just uh, getting to work, being a national team manager of constantly visiting people and trying uh, and dealing with clubs and stuff would just do his head in. But I agree. I think he would come to the U.S. men's national team and he would teach this country a thing or two about you know the beauty of this game. Uh, but yeah, it would be fantastic.
0: I will give you another plug for my club story coming out Thursday. Check it out on SI.com. It's part of the first monthly edition, the print magazine of Sports Illustrated, February 2020. And obviously, there's not going to be news coverage in there, but we are going to be doing a lot of really cool features. And so I feel good about that. You know, obviously, it's a change, a major change for Sports Illustrated. But um, a guy like Jurgen Klopp wants to speak to Sports Illustrated. He was excited about being in Sports Illustrated, which I thought was kind of neat. Uh, cause he doesn't give too many sit down interviews. Some he's not, he gives a few more than Guardiola does. Um, but I really enjoyed the opportunity to meet him in person and, and interview him. And, um, there's some fun stories in there about his first trip ever to New York city, where he actually accepted the job with Liverpool, um, and walked through the streets aimlessly as he was, his agent was negotiating the final terms with the Liverpool honchos. And, um, he said he, he had a few smokes. He's a smoker. Like uh, He was on the vape throughout our, our interview uh, in his office at Liverpool. And uh, But he said while he was waiting, he uh, had a few smokes, ducked into a PING golf store in New York, even though he's not a golfer because he wanted to buy a hat because people were starting to recognize him. This is back in 2015 uh, when he took the job of Liverpool. And I'm excited about the timing of this story coming out when it is because – I think we're at peak Klopp right now.
1: Oh, absolutely we're at peak Klopp. I can't wait to read it. It's a, it's great timing for you, my goodness, and for us. Uh, but my goodness, uh, he is the the man of the hour, and I'm so excited to, to read the piece. I mean, there's no other person that I love. I mean, every single press interview he gives, he's just... Here's the thing. It's not just about tactics with him or like how good as a manager he is or a coach or a man manager and how he develops players and how players look up to him, etc. You could tell he's a good human being. This and one, that to me is what's more important than anything, to be honest. And
0: one of the points I make in the story is, you know how tribal things are over in England and soccer? Almost nobody dislikes Jur- Jurgen Klopp.
1: Yeah, and that's can't. a pretty
0: hard thing to do. When you think about it. yeah, some Everton fans might not like him as much. And I had a weird experience. I, I joined a gym for the week I was there in Liverpool, and I was on the rowing machine. Which one? I don't know downtown somewhere. <laughs> and I'm on the rowing machine, and I'm having a, like a pretty good workout. And this like 50 year old woman is next to me on the rower, and I don't talk to people when I'm on a rowing machine, okay? And she starts like interviewing me basically about what I'm doing there and I tell her I'm there to do a Klopp story and it turns out she's an Everton fan and she starts like going off on, on Jurgen Klopp and and how like he's a fraud and, and, and like I appreciate the um, enthusiasm that they have for soccer over there that this middle-aged woman just wanted to go off on Jurgen Klopp. I think she was an outlier. But I finally stopped talking to her. One, because I was having a really hard workout and didn't have the opportunity. And also start. because I really didn't want to talk about Jurgen Klopp being a bad guy because I don't think he is.
1: It's just so random. I just picture this image of you rowing and this like scouse lady just go just going nuts because you're can you tell me this after I get a drink at least? Why does this stuff happen to me on the road like that? It's hilarious. It's interesting what you remember from trips, too. Amazing. But anyway, read the story Thursday, SI.com. Can't wait.
0: Um, let's talk about Kun Uh Has a hat trick against Villa. Becomes the top non-English scorer in Premier League history. Do we sort of not
1: give him his proper recognition? I think so. I don't think he gets the right recognition. I think people rate him. And people obviously... Be, and before this stat was broken, you know, people would say, yes, of course, he's a tremendous uh, striker. But for some reason, and I think a lot of it has to do is because he plays for Man City. I have a theory myself. I, and, you know, him obviously being Argentinian maybe has something to do with it. But I, I just think that the fact that he has taken over Thierry Henry yeah. with 177 goals, he's only 10 behind Andy Cole, which um, if you're a young listener, You need to understand that that's incredible. And he's going to pass him to be 10 goals behind Andy Cole in the Premier League and then Wayne Rooney at 208 and then Shearer, which is the ultimate, which is at 260. But, you know, he still has a few years in him left. He is a tremendous striker. And a lot of it also has to do that he's Argentinian and he plays, you know, for the national team next to, you know, what is regarded as the greatest player that's ever lived. I think that's another. But Premier League alone. I think that him being Argentinian has a lot to do with it. Him playing for Manchester City has a lot to do with it, but you can't deny the fact that this striker is absolutely incredible. 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 The way that he scores goals, the way, you know, he's not a 6 foot 3 agile like he's he's a he's a, you know, he's a short stocked Argentinian, but he's such an incredible finisher and he continues to do so. It's amazing. I think
0: people don't always step back and put things in historical perspective. And so, do you remember like when City first got bought by the Qataris? I'm yeah. sorry, the uh, uh, the UAE folks, yeah. Abu Dhabi folks. Yeah, um, that uh, they bought Rubinho, and basically that was a disaster, right? Now, granted, they didn't have a, a an adequate team that they put around him, but you know, Aguero's been fantastic under a number of different managers. He's kind of had to prove himself with Guardiola. That's a good point. Um, Reinvent himself, yeah. You know, he's won titles. He's been consistent every year. He He's had not too many injuries. Um, he produces. I think it's not just being Argentine. It's not speaking much English. Yeah, that's true. You know, too. it's a little bit like maybe the response that gareth bale has gotten in spain for not speaking spanish after being there for a <laughs> yeah. long time and like i do i do think this i i i always think a guy has a better chance of succeeding as a player when he goes into a new country where he doesn't originally speak the language if he learns the language quickly i think that's a, a part of settling in it's why guys like steve Cherundolo did well in germany they learned the language quickly and it helped them adapt. And clearly Aguero hasn't done that in how many years he's been there. But it's not an ironclad rule, right? You can still make it and succeed as Aguero has. And to, honestly, to an extent, as Bale has. Uh, and not pick up the language fluently.
1: Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm growing up in England, I can tell you right now that there needs to be, if you are uh, an immigrant moving to the country, you better adapt quick. Otherwise, you know, you get lost in the... In in the in the scheme of things, I'm talking. I'm not even talking about soccer anymore. And I think you have a very good point about you know I I'm not necessarily speaking English, and so he gets lost in 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 the model there. But we need to emphasize this once again to score 170. What is it now? 177 is it? Uh, 177 goals. Yeah. It and to surpass Thierry Henry, who you know. I, again, young listeners, you need to just go back and watch the, what that man did for Arsenal. It's incredible. 33 with his left foot. 70, he's also more hat tricks than anybody else in the Premier League, which is amazing. So, well done to Sergio Aguero. His contract, I believe, expires 2021, so he still has you know, a few more uh, seasons to try and see how much he can elevate his game. But I think you you, you you make a good point about adapting to the certain culture in which you play has a lot to, to, to say with in terms of your marketing and, and how people see you, etc.
0: Have I told you, by the way, that I think this is the Argentine national team's year to finally win a major trophy?
1: No, but I'm not surprised because I did say that myself. I actually think that um, definitely in World Cup qualifiers... They're going to be very good, I think, because uh, what Scaloni's doing is, is now developing a culture. And now Sergio Aguero, obviously Messi, of course, but now you have you know Lautaro Martinez doing so well for Inter Milan and the younger guys in the midfield doing a little bit better. This is a time... I think Argentina is finally learning its lessons from the few years and, and, and Scaloni, who's been in the development with the national team and the youth setups, etc., for so long, he's developing a culture, which is way more important. And I haven't even mentioned Paulo Dybala. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, there's so many players that are so good. And the players that both play in the Argentine uh, League, etc. So, yeah, no, I'm not surprised. I think this is a good, could be a good year for them. Before we move on to the European continent, I want to say something about Southampton
0: winning at Leicester City. The same Leicester team that yeah. beat Southampton 9-0 earlier this season, and everyone assumed that Hazen Huddle was out immediately including us.
1: And they kept them and look at what they've been doing. I tweeted about this this weekend and we've talked a lot about it, but it's it's amazing and well done to the board for sticking to them. Nobody I think would have done that after nine nothing. And now, you know, a 2-1 win against Leicester City. Danny Ings, my goodness. Uh, you know, what a resurrection for him. That makes it five wins in the last nine games. That's three wins in a row for Southampton. I mean, honestly, I almost wonder if you asked Hazen Huddle,
0: like, if he was being honest, did you consider resigning on, like, in the post-game press interview? Because some managers would have done that yeah. or felt the pressure to do that. I can remember the Euro 2000 semifinal in Holland when... The Dutch went out on penalties, and Frank Reichardt literally resigned in the post game press interview, like on the sideline.
1: (laughs) It was great. (laughs) Can I say something? If Rob hasn't, if he was uh, South American, maybe, (laughs) but him being Austrian, I think, you know, patience, everybody calm down, we'll get this done. Peruvian, forget it. I'm out. I'm out at halftime before that 9 nothing loss. By the way, Bill O'Brien, Houston Texans. Coach should have resigned on the sidelines. I think. This weekend. I can't wait to get our replies this week. <laughs> from, from all different verticals. Um,
0: let's go to Europe. Uh, Barcelona, not a good weekend. Uh, to say the least. Luis Suarez out for four months after which by the way
1: i think is the biggest piece of news Sorry, carry on.
0: no but i mean like originally this was supposed to be much shorter term and suddenly it's four months so uh, i I assume more than a meniscus situation here um and so that's going to have a huge impact on this team as they battle real madrid to try and win la liga as they try to continue in, in champions league uh Antoine Griezmann you figure will now get an opportunity to play as center forward full time and, and get a chance to make his mark and and honestly do you think Suarez might this like might be he might be finished as a Barcelona player that like, he may have played his last game at Barcelona
1: I I don't know it, it it's a good question I mean where, where where does he see his career move on that's it's a big question I, but let's go back to I mean this is a major major problem, and we haven't even touched the Valverde-Xavi situation. I mean, the Pichichi you got Messi leading with Karim Benzema, guess who's third? It's Luis Suarez. He is a pivotal pivotal player for this team. Um, Antoine Griezmann is, uh, you would think that he will go to his natural favorite number nine spot, so he'll probably feature a little bit more centrally now. Maybe Ansu Fati will get more of a run, but you know, this is a big deal as Barcelona... You know, tries to A, maintain La Liga, but also the Champions League comes. But I think it's a good question. I don't know. I don't know what Luis Suarez think, is thinking. I think it all depends on what happens this summer with the new manager. I think if Valverde stays, which is obviously at this point you would bet your house that he's not, I think if Xavi comes in, then that would be a, a big determinant for, for Luis Suarez to stay for next season.
0: Well, we're recording this on Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern, and Valverde as of this moment, is still the manager at Barcelona, but he might not be later in the day, because in my opinion, Barcelona has mishandled this completely. So, their executives, including Eric Abidal, go to Qatar and try to act like they're going to see Usman Dembele as he re- re- returns or like does rehab, which is idiotic, and it gets out that actually they went to see Xavi. And Xavi himself was surprised that they offered him the manager position immediately. Xavi's coaching Al Saad in Qatar. Um, And so Xavi said no for now. And we might have a situation here where Xavi ends up coming in the fall and they go with somebody else to replace Valverde for now or because Valverde has been totally neutered by this whole thing. Or Valverde just continues?
1: Oh, my goodness. This has just been crazy. All right. T- to begin <laughs> with, like you said, the way that Barcelona has dealt with this is ridiculous. It's insulting to— uh, Really amateur hour. Really, really bad. The way that they have dealt with Ernesto Valverde is insulting. And and it's really—you know, the fact to do this right as, you know, you expect also the coach that you're trying to fire to do his day-to-day job— um, the reports, uh, serious reports come in that Abidal and, and team went to meet Xavi. And Xavi was like, I'm not taking over this in midseason, but I'll do it in the summer and we can you know, move on from there. He He's made no secret, obviously, about the fact that he wants to manage Barcelona someday. And I think the meetings basically were about to say, well, would you take over now? And Xavi was like, no. I'll do it in the summer. Uh, So there goes the team coming back. And as you speak, as we are speaking from Monday morning, uh, Bartoméu and the directors' board they met with Valverde this morning. They had a a long meetings. Well, this was during, by the way, at the same time Valverde's handling training. Um, And And then Iniesta shows up at training. (laughs) He makes his point. I think he's also like, upset of the way yeah. that the club has dealt with this. After those meetings, Valverde goes back to doing his day-to-day, trying to plan for the next few matches, etc., as nothing has happened. But uh, you know, according to the latest, we have uh, now the entire board meeting going on for a while now. Uh, with Bartomeu basically explaining his points of view after meeting Valverde. So like you said, you don't know. By the end of this day, we might not have Valverde anymore as a manager. And I think, what's here's what I think is going to happen. Valverde will leave, and uh, Javier Garcia Pimienta, who's the B coach, will take over, and then Xavi will come in and suffer. And I think that's what's going to happen. And if you're a Barcelona fan, you are so happy about Valverde leaving, and I think, careful what you wish for.
0: Let's just get it over with and call Messi player-coach for the rest of the season.
1: (laughs) I think that would be a better call. I mean, seriously. But I think that's the way that Barcelona has handled this is really terrible. Would you want to work for those guys? Not like that. I mean, I mean, the thing is, last week we talked about Xavi taking over, but not till the summer. Right. And I think it's a legitimate question to ask, is Xavi in a position
0: where he's qualified, ready to coach the Barcelona senior team? Because there's this romantic notion, right? And you hear the word romantic a lot with Xavi, and, and a lot of those are for positive reasons. He, he, he cares about the way Barcelona plays. He's uh, you know really into the history of the club and Cruyff and kind of the keeper of the Cruyff flame.
1: He's a legend as a player, yeah. of course.
0: Yeah, um, but you know, this idea that Guardiola went from coaching Barcelona B to having so much success with the senior team doesn't mean that that you're going to catch lightning in a bottle again, right? And I think there's kind of this assumption. And keep in mind, Javi hasn't been coaching Barcelona B. He's been coaching Al Saad in Qatar. Um, And our friend Miguel Delaney makes a good point where Javi talks a lot about the morality of, of how you play football, which, okay, great, I'm
1: I'm with you on that. But then he goes and works in Qatar and takes the Qataris money. Yeah. And, you know, we make fun of a lot of Ancelotti going to Everton, but at least he's going to a team that's not a major, right? I I mean, I agree. I, I just think a lot of it is this Arteta thinking, right, where it's like we need a player that has a relationship with the club that can invigorate the fan base. And I think that's what Bartomeu is thinking. But, again, careful what you wish for because the experience has not been fully proven yet. The skills as a manager has not been fully proven yet. Now, okay I, I did still worked under Guardiola for a long time. Assistant coach for Manchester City, right? Right. Whereas you know, now having said all that, I think if these uh, decisions had been made in the summer and then they announced that we're taking Xavi's taking over from now and it's the summer, I would have been okay. That that's a, I understand that it's a gamble, but I get it. But the fact that this is all going on right now, it's not even February. It, uh, you know, right in plain sight. Is, and from the reports that I'm reading as of right now, as we're talking, the morning session, the morning training sessions were uh, managed by Valverde and reportedly there's going to be evening sessions with the new manager. So <laughs> it's like this 180 from one day to the, other, and then, uh, and then it's a day off later in the week for, for the team. I just, it's craziness. Oh, and by the way, Luis Suarez is out for four months.
0: Um, Real soccer was actually played in Spain. Or actually not in Spain, in Saudi Arabia. They <laughs> did play Copa del Rey in Spain over the weekend. But uh, Real Madrid wins the Spanish Super Cup in Saudi Arabia on penalties over Atletico Madrid. Um, should we even talk much about this? I mean, this seems like a weird one. This is all part of sports washing. The Saudis ended up getting you know these now semifinals and finals of the Spanish Super Cup which is this sort of whatever
1: trophy anyway. The final was played by two teams that usually wouldn't even play in that final, right? It's meant to be the, the winner of the Copa del Rey the yeah. winner of the league. Last season that was Barcelona and Valencia, right? <laughs> and the final was a Madrid final. Yeah. Um, there isn't much worth saying here. It was a bad game. Yeah, and the only thing I'll say is about you know uh, Valverde and his red card. Uh, which, oh, you different know, Valverde, yes. <laughs> l- listen, in any situation, if you've ever played the game, or you don't even need to play it, but that's that's a red card that needed to happen. In order, you know, you can be as uh, critical of what he did. It's like the Luis Suarez handball, and the like. It just you know. He, ne- he actually, in the post-conference, Valverde said, listen, I-, I went to Morata and I apologized. You should explain what happened in the... So basically, it's the dying minutes of the game and Atletico Madrid is on a counter-attack ready to take over the win and win the trophy. And Morata is literally about to go one-on-one with uh, uh with the keeper, with Old Black and... No, sorry, with Courtois. And Valverde, the midfielder, just sprints to try... And and he he succeeds in bringing him down. Uh, he's the last man, and it's a red card. Um, and it was a horrible foul, but it was a needed foul because otherwise Morata would probably score, and that's that's game over for Real Madrid. Eventually, it stays 0-0, goes to extra time, goes to penalties. Every Real Madrid player scores, except for Partey, Atletico Madrid player, Courtois saves it, Real Madrid wins the game. And the reason mainly being is Valverde's red card sent that game to extra time. So you could be critical about the fact that it was a horrible foul. But in the heat of the moment, when you're trying to save your team, what are you going to do? And Valverde in the post-conference, like I said, said, listen, I apologize to Morata. And what I did was not good. And it's always going to be a thorn in me thinking about that. But it had to be done. I had to do
0: it. This is kind of the equivalent of Luis Suarez in the 2010 World yeah. Cup with the, the handball, the intentional one on the goal line that kept Ghana from winning. Yeah. Um, and here's a couple things I would say. One. We can't be sure Murata actually would score. <laughs> true,
1: <laughs> too. That's true. Especially because it's Murata.
0: Maybe they could like suspend Valverde for life from the Copa or from like the Super Cup or like for Copa life. Rey, or, 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 I don't know. Do something dramatic, <laughs> like Quate Blanco's suspension from the U.S. Open Cup, which is basically a life suspension. I think
1: he's still likes of Maybe he can't play in the next three games in the next one or something. <laughs> Maybe he can He gets an economy room in the hotel in Saudi Arabia. He doesn't get the, the suite. Yeah, I don't know. And, and by the way, quit doing this stuff with Saudi Arabia. Yeah, it's, just, it's just the worst. You know, money they're, drives. They're, they're Read Jonathan actors. Wilson's excellent piece about this. Yeah. But,
0: yeah, money drives. Um, in Italy, Juventus wins 2-1 at Roma, takes a two-point lead on Inter, which tied Atalanta. Um, you have a tough... Uh, Demerol, tough um, ACL. Is it ACL? Um, I think
1: it's an ACL. There's
0: a couple bad injuries over the weekend. Uh, Demerol is one of them for Juve. Uh, Zaniolo for Roma in this same game. Definitely an ACL rupture, which is It is, is an a real, ACL, yeah. Um, and, you know, Demerol was keeping Delict out of the starting lineup for for Juve. But, you know, Roma had actually been doing pretty well. So this is a, a really nice win for Juve on the road.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, they're starting 2020 well. Uh, and again, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, a nice holiday break. <laughs> players get to you know. imagine that imagine that you know just their bodies uh, can sort of recharge the batteries mentally recharge the batteries Cristiano Ronaldo scores a hat-trick in the first game of 2020 and now this um you know obviously the Demerale ACL is not great but hopefully the Licht can can replace but it's an it's an exciting race to 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 Scudetto
0: there's a couple of things I want to say about Italy here um There's a guy, Fabrizio Romano, on Twitter, who is basically... There's two guys in Italy who I would say are the woge shifter of transfer season. And one of them is Fabrizio Romano. The other is um, David Amoyle's guy. And why am I blanking? Um, Hold on here. I'm the worst. I hope the guy isn't...
1: Well, but Fabrizio Romano is... I mean, De Marzio. Oh, uh, that's it. But John Fabrizio Romano is just, uh, yeah, he's like the Wosh of of Serie. A. It's, it's it's unbelievable.
0: But what's interesting is is um, Fabrizio Romano is, is sort of like branching out into other parts of Europe. So if you look, go on his timeline here, and he's a he's a this isn't some tabloid guy here. He gets stuff right. Um, Tottenham are set to sign Jetson Fernandez on loan with a buy option. Uh, total Mourinho deal here. Um and then Ashley Young he reports uh, has agreed personal terms with Inters he nears a move from Manchester United yet another man United guy looking to go to Inter um Asmir Begovic our buddy who came in studio on our show not too long ago who has been playing in like Azerbaijan, right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, is the favorite to join AC Milan as a substitute for Pepe Reina, who's about to sign the villa. Yep. Um, Who was there at the game. <laughs> and
1: I think he probably should have asked for more money, to be honest. got to make more
0: sense. Uh, and then he's got uh, Rainier from Flamengo to Real Madrid, a done deal. Uh, Olivier Giroud um, heading to Inter. Like, what is Inter doing here? Like, how, like Do they just
1: want to sign everybody? It's, it's weird. I guess... Well, I guess Conte's thinking about the the busy schedule. Obviously, no. They're playing Champions League. Uh, right, so are well, in Europa League. Yeah, I guess. but <laughs> is it that? But I, so I guess you got to put n- numbers in there, and he's probably he wants the trophy, right? So he will take the Europa League to a certain degree of importance, I guess. Um, and I think he wants to take care of Lukaku and Lautaro Martinez. To be honest, like you don't want to completely. Uh, You know, exhaust them uh, as the season goes along. But yeah, there's some interesting transfer deals between Italy and the Premier League as well. It's it's, it's interesting. By
0: the way, my apologies to Gianluca DiMarzio. He's awesome and (laughs) I momentarily didn't have his name there. But you should follow both these guys on Twitter. They are really, really good at what they do, especially in a month like January. Yep, they're on it. Um, Let's move on here to North America where for me, and this is a developing story here, the LA Galaxy has confirm publicly that they are pursuing Chicharito Hernandez, who is not first choice at Sevilla, has been told that for the rest of the season. And in my opinion, this is Chicharito's last chance at a big payday in MLS. I I, I think he's run out of chances for the big one. Like, you know, like this is a big money
1: deal. Absolutely. This is it. This would be... Uh... You know, as Jeff Carlisle reports, uh, this would be a $10 million uh, pay. And like you said, this is it for him. This is his last. Uh, uh, much of the conversation was about Chicharito saying to himself, do I want to keep trying to compete myself in Europe, in one of the best leagues in the world, for a very good team? Or can I move to MLS and to a team that's immediately going to love me? And have a prominent role. Start every single game. Aim to do a Carlos Vela-ish season, and reinvigorate the fan base. Because let's face it, it's also about that Mexican-American fan base in Los Angeles. Right after you know Slatten says goodbye, this could be a sort of a good way to to once again invigorate that that team, and you know against it's their 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 derby foes, uh, LAFC. But this is it for him if he makes this decision, and I think it's a good one. Come, I think it's time. Go for it. Let's go. Yeah. Come to come to LA Galaxy. Uh, this is it this is a league that's that's getting better in competition. It is. More talented players are coming in. There's a clear Latin American influx. Chicharito obviously is a well known name. He's not a young buck, but he can come to LA Galaxy in a team uh, well coached and you know they can they can probably compete for, for something and learn from the mistakes from last year couple of points I'd make
0: here. Um, if Monchi, the famous sporting director for Sevilla, gets this deal done, he will buy low and sell high again. Yeah. For a guy who's in his 30s in this case, which is, I mean, he, that guy's so good at his job, and I don't care what people
1: say about his time at Roma. Um, nice, no, making money if this happens.
0: Yeah. Um, another question I've got is, where are Chicago Fire and Inter-Miami in this? Why aren't they doing the same thing? Why is this just the LA Galaxy?
1: I don't know, but, you know, we waited a while for Diego Alonso to be named. I mean, I managed to be named for Inter Miami, and finally it happened, which is fine. Uh, the DP is still in question. We don't know what angle he's going to take. There's not necessarily—I mean, there are talks of Roger Martinez. You know, hopefully that becomes more aggressive, but we're nearly in February here friendlies are starting at the end of the month but think of how much
0: value there is for inter miami to not wait for somebody until the summer to if you can get chicharito hernandez and you're inter miami and i realize miami is more of a south american city than a mexican city but they just hired a guy who's coached in mexico Mm. and i i I think that would be a good move for them if i'm chicharito i'm everyone wants to live in miami as well so like why, why is Miami not pursuing him? And really, why is Chicago not pursuing him? That's crazy to me. Yeah. And, and everything that Chicago has done in this offseason with all their hires, new sporting director, new head coach, suggests they aren't really going the Latino direction. No, I don't think so. It's a very Latino city. I
1: think they're going in an aging European direction, uh, which is not the way... What are you doing? Forget what are you my. Doing? Listen. Forget my own subjective arguments about you know wanting more Latin Americans in MLS. Look at the past winners of MLS Cup. You know a team well managed, well coached with a good squad led by you know their number nine being Raúl Rodriguez with Seattle, Atlanta United, Joseph Martinez, Miguel. There's a clear direction in which teams are going, and, and Chicago's recreating FC Basel. Yeah. <laughs> we're not the same beer so it's like it's not fair Um, but look reports obviously and you know almost certain you know Edison Flores is going to come to DC United you know there's a reason why all these moves are being made you get yes you have to pay a certain amount of money but you know you're going to have these players for a certain amount of time they're you know all the players that I've talked about they're world cup internationals like they, they know what they're doing and they're not reach they're not 34 they're not 35 they're in their late 20s this is the time to buy chicharito is a is a very unique example but i agree that more more teams in la galaxy should be fighting in for it
0: now before we go back to mls and a couple of other things i wanted to ask you about you wrote a story about Uh, What to watch for in the Mexican Clausura, which kicked off already.
1: Crazy, right? (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) Clausura. It's been, what, two weeks. It was less (laughs) than two weeks that Monterrey won Apertura and just like that we come back to the clausura, which is actually going to be pretty interesting, I think, because so many players, there's been, a just as much as we're talking about Serie A and Premier League business, there's been a lot of MLS, uh, Liga MX uh, business, you know, talking about, obviously, their reports, almost, but certain Edison Flores uh, coming, um, uh, Lucho Acosta from DC United going to Atlas, etc. like lots of players going in and out, obviously talks about Brian Lozano from Santos Laguna, but there's a lot of talent to watch out for. Uh, one of the biggest, things to watch out for, is, um, number one, there is, now that Alan Pulido has come to MLS, Liga MX now is looking at who's going to be the leading top scorer, and there's so many names. Obviously, Gignac is always going to be in the conversation, even though he's 34, 35. Uh, but Jota Jota Macias, once again, JJ Macias, who's the leading striker now, Ahead of Alan Pulido at Chivas Guadalajara should be an interesting one. And again, we talk about Brian Lozano for Santos Laguna. He's a Uruguayan player that's also been looked at by LAFC. He's a real player to watch out for. If you're an MLS fan and you're thinking, ooh, what are the exciting players coming in from Mexico? Brian Lozano, the Uruguayan, is fantastic. The other really cool story is about um, who I just mentioned, Chivas Guadalajara. Chivas Guadalajara has the second most titles in history in Liga MX after Club America. And what they did, this since Matias Almeida left, they basically went on a no playoffs attendance, stand, and they've really struggled. So they brought in a new sporting director, and they've completely revamped the way they want to do things. They spent more than forty million dollars in the this off towards the Clausura. They brought they brought back Jota uh, Jota Masías, who was on loan at Leon. So many different players, Antuna is now also a player there. So that's a, that's a team to watch out for, a sort of old horse, old warrior, ready to revitalize itself once again.
0: And they announced last week something very interesting in terms of their broadcast games uh, in the U.S., where the only place you can see their home games now is on their own app.
1: Yeah, which is really, it's, it's kind of a smart gamble because if you look at the statistics of the most watched matches oh, in yeah. this country... Mexican matches dominate everything. So, you know, their idea is, you know, there's a huge Guadalajara fan base in North America, not just Mexico. So they're trying to drive all that traffic to their own to their own app. I think it, it's know, curious to see how it goes yeah. and what kind
0: of influence it might have on, like, what America does or even other teams uh, in the U.S. I think it's like seven dollars a month, yeah. something like that. We'll see. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I am headed to the MLS media day this week out in Los Angeles. Um, Always look forward to this. They bring out players from all the different MLS teams. You've got coaches, even this year some GMs and owners. Uh, And they basically turn it into a car wash where they, you know, they give you like 15 minutes one-on-one. And then boom, another guy comes in, boom, another guy comes in. Uh, for other writers too, they have roundtables where they literally start at like eight in the morning and they go through six at night where you have a new guy come in every 15 minutes and talk about his team. There's so many teams in MLS now that it's, it's a lot. Uh, It's more and more every year. This one's going to be different though, because uh, obviously there are still stars in the league like Carlos Vela, who I'm looking forward to speaking to. Um, But you know, last year when I went, I, I did sit down interviews with three different guys, Ibrahimovic, Schweinsteiger, and Rooney. And all three of those guys are gone now. And so this is, I think, an even bigger reminder of the direction MLS has decided to go in, which I think overall is probably the right call to have younger designated players coming into the league, but it also means you need to be on top of what's happening.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I was going to go with you. Uh, My schedule didn't allow it, but it's exciting. It's exciting to see... The diversity in in personnel when you go to these things. Obviously, I think also a major thing is the manager uh, personnel too, right? All these new managers from different countries now coming in. Um, it should be a really interesting season, uh, in what is the anniversary? So you know, it should be it should be exciting. Um, news with the U.S. Men's National Team: Brian McBride has
0: been named the general manager of the Men's National Team. Uh, frankly, I didn't even know he was a candidate, but I, I knew that position was open. Uh, I think there's a question with Ernie Stewart as the sporting director and the general manager underneath. There's some curiosity about how those roles are going to work. Um, but on the other hand, I you know some of the hires by U.S. soccer, including Anthony Hudson as the under-20 coach recently, have been sort of underwhelming. And, and McBride, while we don't totally know what the GM does— um, this seems
1: like a pretty good hire <laughs> whatever he may do it seems good no I think it's I think it's good right it's good I mean you know more than me in this but Brian McBride is synonymous with the US men's national team just everything that he's done both in Europe and, and for the country um, from the presser that I read you know he's very very keen to just get things going and help this uh, you know develop the, the nation the young squad uh, you know, I think it's a smart one. Well,
0: I think when it comes to sort of transmitting the culture of the U.S. men's national team when it was at its best, McBride knows as much about that as anybody. Right. Uh, I would also say this will be interesting to see how this works. Like the GM position, in theory, as they've laid it out, is in charge of hiring and firing senior national team coaches. And so, um, does he
1: need an OK from Ernie Stewart? You would does- think.
0: Right? Yeah, you think. I think so. You know? Right? The hierarchy. That's where it says gets confu-
1: so. That's where it gets a little confusing. <laughs> or <laughs> is there a certain people that he can fire and not tell Ernie? Is there like <laughs> I, I don't? I just don't know. Like, um, what's and, his expense report gonna be like? Can he travel a lot? Does he have to live in Chicago? He already lived in Chicago. Oh, had right.
0: hired. <laughs>
1: Suddenly, a lot is explained to me now. That's why he's. You want hired. a job
0: with U.S. Soccer? Go move to Chicago I'm now.
1: Gonna, absolutely. Um, <laughs> he lives in Chicago already. Of course, that's the reason. But <laughs> we can just hand mail him his contract. <laughs> <We're> so hard. <laughs> Doesn't even need to be FedExed. Oh boy. Um,
0: I would also say, and I, I don't, I don't think this is nothing. That U.S. Soccer doesn't have as many people these days who are really good in front of a camera. Yeah. In terms of just PR, in terms yeah. of how you present the public face of the federation to the to the country, to the fans. And if we're being honest, Ernie Stewart isn't totally comfortable with that. Greg Burhalter sort of is, but you know, isn't you know, he's not a guy who's
1: very nice guy, but yeah. very passive, very quiet, not yeah. Um
0: you know, Carlos Cordero compared to Sunil Gulati, definitely not uh, big on speaking publicly. Absolutely not. And, and so, you know, I, I find it interesting that Kate Markgraf, the women's GM, and Brian Bride, the men's GM, are coming straight from jobs at ESPN where they know how to speak to cameras and speak publicly and, and,
1: and be compelling. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually. A lot of it has to do with how, not just what you're doing with your product, but how you are selling it and how you are promoting it. And I think both GMs have a good resume when it comes to that.
0: I mean, and Jürgen Klinsmann was really good at that. Yeah, whether you agreed with him or not, he was very good at that. Whether you agree with his his belief said last week to ESPN that he would have taken the U.S. to the semifinals of the 2018 World Cup, which... He was talking FIFA, right? Like if he played... (laughs) Is he what? kidding? It's really funny. And if if you're interviewing, here's my question: If you're interviewing Jurgen Klinsmann, he says that, do you start laughing? I mean, did did they? It was
1: did Brian Donzec
0: was interviewing him, right? He also went on Sirius XM. Yeah. Okay. I, I would have started laughing.
1: <laughs> like, what is he talking I was like, about? Come on, man! I mean, like, <laughs> that's so what, what I'm saying. <laughs> I think it was FIFA. If you're playing like amateur, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Oh, boy. I'm laughing more this week than I even usually do. Um, <laughs> I'm just still laughing at the lady yelling at you while you're rolling. <laughs> you're <that's> a terrible <laughs> human being. Wait till I finish my set, then we can talk.
0: <laughs> just a few more things here. Um, I did do a story which I thought was really interesting uh, to. Get the inside lowdown on all the things that happened involving the U.S. switch of the men's camp from Qatar, where they were supposed to be for the month of January, to Florida. And I talked to a guy named Tom King, who's a really nice man who uh, is the closest thing to a foreign diplomat I've ever encountered in soccer. He works for the U.S. Soccer Federation. He's in charge of scheduling friendlies. He's in charge of organizing all the logistics that go into a U.S. trip and security and all this stuff. And it's it's so much bigger than oh, it's a lot. most people realize. It's a lot. And, you know, obviously, good. when the, the U.S. leaves uh, as a team, the United States, you have to have even more security. And um, and they had chosen to go to Qatar, which not everyone agreed with, but the reasoning was, was that this is where the World Cup is going to be, and they thought mentally this would be good for the U.S. players to – to go there, as they've done before other World Cups, the last four or five, um, and have this camp over there. And then literally two days before the camp is set to start, um, Soleimani, the Iranian general, is targeted by a U.S. missile and killed. And suddenly the, the possibility of war is there. And Tom King is on a flight, as that happens, to Qatar, about two days ahead of the rest of the U.S. delegation. And he filled me in for this story as did Greg Burhalter about how they went about dealing with this crisis. Um, and it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, and how they then made the decision to, on two hours' notice, switch an entire camp to Florida at IMG, so they're now down in Bradenton, uh, and how they were able to pull that off. And whatever you say about U.S. soccer, and they get a lot of criticism and a lot of it's
1: deserved, it's pretty impressive how they handled this. Yeah, I mean— this guy's job does not sound fun. <laughs> That's a lot of logistical work that you have to do. Yeah, I mean I I give him a lot of credit for doing. I mean, like you said, I mean a lot of what people don't realize is you know, forget about what your own views are about it before the team even sets a foot in the la- like in the place where they're training. Like there's already a staff there establishing you know the quarters and figuring out logistics and accommodation and equipment and transportation, you know, Almost months in advance. Oh yeah. So, you know, we have to we have to, like you said, we have to, you know, tip our hat sometimes when 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 things are done the right way and fast. Um,
0: want we'll do some women's stuff here? Uh, this morning the She Believes Cup games were released. Those are going to be March fifth to eleventh in the U.S. You've got four teams. It's four good teams: the USA, England, Spain, and Japan. It's great. Uh, should be a. a a good tournament to watch in terms of uh, really getting people excited for the Olympics, I think. Um, And so uh, the U.S. women are in camp right now. They've got Olympic qualifying starting at the end of this month. So there's really no rest for that team under new coach Vladko Andonovsky. So I'll be looking forward to that tournament. And then NWSL, a lot of big moves last week. Um, In the league, uh, Kalia Ojai gets... Request a trade to Chicago, uh, see if she can get her career going again. Emily Sonnet from the national team gets traded from Portland to Orlando. Portland making moves. Uh, likely to take Sophia Smith, who had come out of college early from Stanford with the number one pick. Um, McCall Zerboni, who's kind of the culture setter for the North Carolina Kurds, the champions of the league, gets traded. Um, to uh, Sky Blue in New Jersey and the rights to Haley Mace then go to North Carolina Mace was the one who decided to play in Europe last year instead of playing for Sky Blue and Sky Blue's turned themselves around quite a bit they just traded uh, Rocky Rodriguez also to Portland, get some draft picks um, so I-, I like the hot stove in the NWSL
1: and Sky Blue at Red Bull Arena
0: Yeah, That should be good no, I'm looking forward to seeing them play here. I think for people in New York who want to see that team, uh, it's a heck of a lot easier now. Obviously, they have Carly Lloyd. Uh, another story that's kind of concerning, uh, Rain FC, which was recently bought by Lyon, uh, impending hire, it's reported, of coach Farid Benstiti, former PSG coach. And what's interesting here is that Lindsey Horan played for Benstiti and his staff at PSG and has told some pretty... Uh, concerning stories about uh, what he and his staff told her, basically said, uh, you need to lose weight, uh, and didn't really even get into the conditioning aspect of it, but basically said,
1: you're fat. Oh, God.
0: Uh,
1: I mean... This is obviously a decision made by the new owners, right? So
0: Got to be. They're the ones who are familiar. I also wonder what Megan Rapinoe, who's part of and FC, thinks about this. Obviously, Lindsey Horan played for Portland, so that's not the concern here. The concern is, are you hiring somebody who shouldn't be coaching a women's team in this league?
1: Yeah, and it's... Oh, God. I mean, yeah, it has to be seriously, you know, talked about, investigated. If a player is not feeling comfortable under a certain manager, there needs to be a discussion. I mean... Shame, because, you know, there's a list of really good players under him. Um, Amandine Henri, Oladito Tomis, Luisa Cadamuro, you know, a lot of good players. But when a com- when a story like that comes out, it's just, you know, you just... And you also, know. too, I'd like to hear his version of the exactly. story. You and just I'd like don't to hear to what those players in France who've played for him
0: say about him.
1: Right. There needs to be a, 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 a you know, what actually happened, what was said, et cetera, and, you know have we moved on from this, et cetera, et cetera.
0: I really do want to get Jean-Michel Olas on the podcast one of these weeks as an interview guest because he's the guy who runs Lyon, Done a lot for women's soccer. uh, Big women's soccer fan. Obviously now he owns Rain FC. Yeah,
1: and he's done a lot, a lot for women's game.
0: So I want to finish up this week with a fun one. Um, Both Luis Miguel and I chimed in on this on Twitter last week of uh, there was a tweet which was, tell me a story about yourself that sounds like a lie, but <laughs> <It's>
1: is absolutely <laughs> true. This has been everywhere, right? Why don't you start?
0: So I'm actually going to read yours, okay. and then I'm going to ask you to give me some more oh. detail here. Oh, God. Okay, so fine. Go For those of you who don't know, Luis Miguel used to be an actor. Uh, did you ever retire from acting? You are still- Not like, according to my wife. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Is this one of those things where, like, you don't necessarily need to have a formal
0: retirement? Exactly, exactly.
1: I didn't retire. It's just, I mean, you know, it's always, it's always a, a love of mine, et cetera a passion of mine, something I, I did from. 13 years old. I'm professionally from 18, so it's always been with me. It's so, never going to go away.
0: Luis Miguel writes, I once did a movie with John Malkovich, Ron Perlman, Devin Aoki, and Thomas Jane. I played Thomas Jane's best friend. It was about mutant killing zombies in a post-apocalyptic era, and we filmed in London during my birthday, and Pros from the Fugees came to my party. And also the amazing Patricia Arquette, and she told me the greatest ever <laughs> movie story when she filmed True Romance, and that scene With James Gandolfini, Um, fill us in on a little more here.
1: (laughs) There's a lot there, right? (laughs) All right, fine. Okay, so uh, 2006, I did a movie called *Mutant Chronicles*. That's the movie I was talking about on the Twitter. Uh, It was like it's like a B sci-fi movie. I mean, I would say C (laughs) sci-fi, but you know, I played Thomas Jane played the main character. I played his best friend and it was about, you know, set in a post-apocalyptic world where the world had calmed down. It's used all its natural resources, so we've gone back to, like, old-school coal-driven machinery and the world's at war. But in between all of this, mutants, zombies, come out of the ground. As they do. As they do. And you have to fight them. And I played a guy called El Jesus. (laughs) And I was Thomas Jane's best friend. Ron Perlman was in it. We became really good friends during the shoot, really great guy. Uh, John Malkovich, Devin Aoki, uh, uh, Steve Toussaint, who's a a British actor, really great guy. And yeah, just had a blast that summer. It was the the World Cup 2006 Summer World Cup. It was just such a World Cup matches, shooting this movie in London, and it was amazing. And yes, Thomas Jane at the time was with Patricia Arquette, and she came to visit uh, the sh- the the set a bunch of times and yeah she just told amazing movie stories and one of them was the one when she shot true romance with uh, James Gandolfini which is just an amazing. And Pras came to your party. And Pross- oh yeah and Pros gave some money towards making the movie, and he got a tiny little uh, role in it. And when he came to film it, it was during like the time when it was my birthday. And the say gave me a birthday cake and we went out to this party and Pras came and he was, it was amazing. I was like waiting for Wyclef and Lauren Help it. Didn't happen, huh? Pras will do that. Pras will that. No, do that'll it. work. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. Anyway, Mal- I'm trying to find, it? yeah, John Malkovich was, John Malkovich, just the weirdest genius that he is. Oh, here it is. Okay, here's Grant's. Oh, he has two. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. First of all, the second one's amazing. One, I took my seat in first class as LeBron walked past to take a seat in economy. (laughs) Or two, Urkel started a beef with me once in the locker room. Well, you need to tell both, especially two. I I will tell both. Um,
0: So the first one, I took my seat in first class as LeBron walked past to take a seat in economy, comes from... Uh, late 2002, I was writing my second story on LeBron for Sports Illustrated magazine. I'd written the first one earlier yeah. that year when we put him on the cover. Now, this one involved him and his team flying to L.A. to be in this ESPN televised high school game from Pauley Pavilion. And by this point, LeBron was like big, you know, and everyone kind of knew about him. But this was still a, an emerging talent and so I actually flew into northern Ohio and uh, met up I knew what flight LeBron and his team were taking to LA and I kind of wanted to get this scene right because like this was like a pretty big deal and so I'm on the same flight but I was like the last person to get a ticket for the plane and so the only available seats were in first class and I don't typically travel in first class but on that flight I did so I'm in first class And LeBron and his team are not. And so LeBron, who was quite large at the time, sat in economy and walked by me and smiled and and went into economy, which I just thought was very strange.
1: Amazing. Amazing. Uh, (laughs) Two the
0: second one I need to know. Urkel started a beef with me once in a (laughs) locker room. So the guy who played Urkel... This
1: needs to be the title of your next book, by the way.
0: (laughs) What I, what I could have changed it to was Urkel started beef beef with me once in a locker room, parentheses, though he would have said it started much longer before that, <laughs> which kind of adds to the story. Um, so Urkel had attached himself in the early 2000s to Freddie Adu. Like Freddie Adu was a big thing. And the guy who played Urkel like, really uh, liked Freddie Adu. And so... Um, I had been at some event yeah. where he was, and I, in one of my columns online had written about celebrities who had attached themselves to Freddie Adu, and I think I made some sort of semi-snide comment about celebrities and others like Urkel. <laughs> <laughs> and so later that year, I am at, I think it was the 2004 MLS Cup Final because it was in L.A., And uh, D.C. United wins. Freddie Adu is on that team. And in the post-game locker room for D.C. United is Urkel. (laughs) Urkel is there. And I I go over and say hi to him for whatever reason. I don't know why I did. And and said, yeah, I'm a Sports Illustrated. He kind of looked at me. He goes, you threw a dart at me. You threw a dart at me. (laughs) And and at that point, were you rowing at the time? <laughs> and At that point, I was like, I gotta do work, man. I gotta do some post game interviews here.
1: His real name Jaleel White, by the way. We got also <laughs> also known as
0: Television's Jaleel White. Um, so what did you say? You just walked away? I yeah. Or I mean, you apologized was, or whatever? Or you said, "What are you talking about?" There might have been like a murmured, "Sorry, man. Yeah, I gotta go do my work. <laughs> I just didn't really have the desire." That's too good, man. Thank God Twitter wasn't around around that time. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so that's the story. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Love it. So That blew up, by the way,
1: everybody talking about.
0: (laughs) Crazy, right? So I think we're done for the week. As always, a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Have a great week. You too, buddy.